Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me to Second Peter chapter two, and this morning we'll be looking at verses seventeen through twenty-two, and the theme is basically going to be the fruitless false teachers. So I'll start reading in Second Peter chapter two, starting in verse seventeen. And the Apostle Peter has already been giving us a, a lengthy description of these false teachers. Last week we looked at basically three categories of sin that they were guilty of. Arrogance, sensuality, and then greed. They are very much uh, driven by money. And so he kind of picks up on it again in verse 17. He adds to that, But he's going to emphasize just their fruitlessness and the effect that it has on those who follow them into the same error. So 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God for our edification and blessing, these words. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Sobering words for sure about these uh, false teachers. And may God bless the reading of His Word. I'm sure you remember when Jesus, towards the latter part of His ministry, was leaving Jerusalem. And He's on His way uh, back to probably Bethany, I think. And He sees a, a lone fig tree by the road. And He goes to the fig tree looking for fruit on it because he was hungry and he didn't find any fruit all he found was leaves it was barren and fruitless and this is what jesus said to that tree he said no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you again and at once the fig tree withered this act of cursing involved a fig tree which basically represents the hypocrite, the false professor, the ones who say they're a fig tree, but they have no figs at all. All they have are leaves. They are barren of fruitfulness. And in a sense, that fig tree that Jesus cursed represented not only the hypocrite in general, but more specifically, the state of the nation of Israel in a general sense, and particularly the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. They were professors without being possessors. They basically were like the church of Sardis that claimed that it had a name that they were alive, but they were in reality dead. So it was fruitless, and therefore it brought a curse down upon their heads. In many ways, what Peter is saying is using that, I think, somewhat as a backdrop 
for saying to his readers that these false teachers and those people who follow them basically are like that tree. They're fruitless. They're devoid of any good spiritual fruit. They produce nothing for the glory of God. They are cursed because of their fruitlessness and their sinfulness. But not only are the false teachers in that deplorable condition, so are those who follow them. So Peter continues his description in these following words, starting in verse 17. Notice how the theme emerges in verse 17, that basically they're empty of spirituality. Look again at what he says in verse 17. He says, these are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. He begins his description by saying they're like springs or wells without water. And of course, water was a very valuable commodity in a dry region like Judea. It's very important because in a hot climate like that, uh, you have to have water. Water to sustain life. Water for farming. Water for the livestock. Water for all the Jewish cleansing traditions that needed to be carrying on. And these false teachers were claiming to be springs and wells of water. They were claiming that they had the truth and that they could enrich people's lives if they just abandoned what they're taught in the church and follow them. So these false teachers claim that if you followed their particular teaching, then your soul and your life would be overflowing with happiness and fulfillment. The problem is, They were dry holes. They were springs without water. And though they claimed to be able to enlighten other people, in reality, they merely spread darkness. They were like a spiritual mirage in the desert that promises water, but upon arriving, all you find is hot, parched, bone-dry sand. That's all they really had to offer. Instead of being like God's Word that we read in Psalm 1, that whoever meditates upon it daily will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in everything he does, he prospers. That's not their ministry. They don't give the water of life of God's truth and God's Word. They give their own slant view on things. Jesus said the ministry of the Holy Spirit would cause from our innermost being to flow rivers of living water. But their ministry was not like that because they were devoid of the Spirit and they were devoid of the Word of God. So they didn't have the true water. But they claimed, oh, we're springs. We're the holders of truth. But Peter says, no, they're springs without any water at all. They didn't have either the Spirit or the Word. Now, I grew up out in the out in the country, outside of Duncan, Oklahoma, and so we lived on like 40 acres, and uh, we had a, a creek that snaked its way through our property, and I spent a lot of time out there hunting and exploring, and down by the creek in one part of our of our land was a was an old water well, an old rusty water well with a big long metal handle. And there used to be a dugout nearby. I think maybe Indians used to live there many, many years before that. But I don't know how many times I went to that water well and I grabbed that iron handle and I pumped and I pumped and I pumped. And many times I went pumping on that thing trying to get a drop of water and never got anything out of it. And Peter says, that's what these false teachers are like. They're a dry hole. Well, they offer to be full of water. But if you follow them, you're going to be dry as they are. So basically what this is indicating is just the deceptive nature of the false teachers. Because they claim to be sources of water. But really they're just deceiving people. And you can find these kinds of false teachers in churches today. You can find them in universities, even teaching in the religion department. You can find them in seminaries. 
They really give no water at all because they have no water to give. Again, they're without the Spirit. They're without life. They're without fruitfulness. They're without blessing. And so in effect, all you have from them is what Jeremiah said about the people of his day. He said, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So they've abandoned the source of true living water, the Lord, to make for themselves a broken cistern that cannot hold any water. That's the false teachers of Peter's day. Then he goes on and he describes them as mist-driven by a storm. And a mist, again, is something that might hold a measure of promise that's going to bring a storm, it's going to bring rain, but all it is is just mist. It can't even really even dampen the soil. It can't even moisten anything. It quickly evaporates off the ground. There's no benefit. And notice he says these are like mist driven by the storm. I mean, they're moving fast. They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. They're unstable. They're on the move. They're quick to come and appear, but then they're quick to leave the scene. And that's partly because false teachers have a tendency to follow the fads of the day. The popular false teachings of the culture of the day. But give it a year or two and those fads are gone. And so they're always moving. They're always changing. It's like a mist, but they're driven by the storm. They're not there for very long. Because a lot of these guys are just fad followers. They're preoccupied with the latest harebrained ideas that come out of the religious world or the culture itself. And it's hard to keep track of Driven by a storm, they're only going to be here for a temporary period of time. So in effect, what Peter has done in verse 17, he's described these false teachers from the inside and from the outside. From the inside, they're like springs or wells with, without water. On the outside, they're like a cloud of mist. And in both ways, they are fruitless, they are empty, they have no water, and they will produce no fruit for the glory of God. So again, you just see the deceptive nature. You see, they promise a lot, but they deliver little if nothing. They promise health and wealth and healing. They promise prosperity. They promise pleasure. They promise orgies. An extravaganza of a lifestyle. But again, they don't produce any fruitfulness for God. They can stimulate people with all their promises of excitement, but their worldly wisdom, they say, is better than the Bible. Follow us. Believe what we're teaching you. Don't mess with the Bible. You don't need it. Our revelation is superior to the Bible. Follow us. And so it's all these deceptive promises. Just like looking for a dark cloud hoping it brings rain on your dry, brittle grass in your front yard and not a drop falls. That's what Peter is describing these people as. In essence, they're always going to disappoint you. You go looking for water, but you don't find it. It's bone dry. They can't deliver on their promises. They're like Satan who promises you gold, but it but he pays in dross. That's all these false teachers are basically doing. They're great in drawing people to their bad theology and their bad lifestyle because it appeals to the flesh. That's why the prosperity and health and wealth movements are so popular because it appeals to the flesh. And many are attracted to them. But it's kind of like neon lights. The bug, the bug lights. You ever had a bug light in your backyard at night? The neon lights, I mean, they just, and those insects are drawn to that light. But then when you listen, what do you hear? <laughs> Zap, sizzle, pop. As those bugs fly in there and they get electrocuted. They get fried. And that's basically the light that these false teachers are attracting people to. 
and people are coming out of the darkness and they see the light, man, that looks good. And they fly right into it and they bring about their own death, their spiritual death. So these false teachers are always going to disappoint. They're fakes. They're springs without water, mist driven by a storm. And then Peter says, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. So God has reserved for them black darkness. It's interesting, the word for reserved, Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, that God has reserved heaven for His people. So God has an inheritance on reserve for the saints of God. But He also has an inheritance on reserve for people. It is described as black darkness. In other words, they're going to reap what they sow. In reality, they don't sow light. They sow darkness and death. And they're going to receive that black darkness from the Lord. It's interesting, he adds the, the darkest kind of darkness that you can imagine. It's the deepest, innermost blackness of dark. In other words, it's so dark, it's so black that you can't see your hand in front of your face. It's, and all of that is, is language to typify just what they're going to inherit. This is basically the terminology for hell that's found in outer darkness. Like the farthest away from the light kind of darkness. It's outer darkness, Jesus said. Outside the boundary of light. Extreme darkness. That's the idea. Separated from His grace, His love, and His mercy. So they are empty of spirituality. And then Peter goes on to add that there are enticing by sensuality as well. They're empty of spirituality because they're dry holes. They have not the Spirit or the, or the Scriptures really. But they also entice others by sensuality. We've already seen this. Peter's already emphasized it before. But look at what he says in verse 18. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live, live in error. So these false teachers are spouting out arrogant words of vanity. So again, that theme of arrogance comes up again. This word for speaking out normally means they, they're loud. They're boisterous. They dominate the conversation. They dominate others. They're unstable. The un, they're unstable and the unstable are also attracted to them. Their teaching sounds attractive. It's illuminating, it sounds like. It's like those colorful carnival balloons full of helium that all the kids are drawn to and they're so pretty and they're, but they're empty. They're, they're, they're lighter than air and they just lift up because they don't have any of the weightiness of truth in them. It's all just false, empty words of vanity, of emptiness. And they use these words to entice by fleshly desires and by sensuality. Again, the word entice, Peter has used it back up in verse 14, which used of using bait to draw in the prey. Now, Peter, remember, he was a fisherman. He knew about baiting a hook. He knew about using bait to catch fish. And so he uses the same word, and this is how the false teachers catch people. They bait them. They use something that draws their attention to them. And oftentimes it's the idea that, you know, God God wants you to be happy. And all those restrictions, you know, no, no. God wants you to be happy and to be able to fulfill your fleshly and sensual desires. He made you that way. Why can't you indulge in it? And they use that as bait to begin to draw people to satisfy their fleshly desires and by sensuality, given into sexual sins. 
And then he adds in verse 18 that who is their target? He says it's basically those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. So the false teachers are going after those people who may be new converts. They have just recently or barely escaped from the ones who live in error, their pagan background. They've come out of that, but now they've become targets for these false teachers. These become the followers that they want. They've escaped their past paganism, the heathenism of the culture in which they were raised in. They escape those who live in error. So in God's grace, common grace, they've come out of that. But they're still very naive. They've come into the church. They've made a profession of faith. They've been baptized. They joined the church. They've they've had some changes in their lives, some reformation, but it doesn't last. They come under the influence of the false teachers, which leads them back into a similar corrupt lifestyle. In verse 19, Peter adds to that, that the false teachers ensnare them by promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. So that's the bait. God wants you to be free. The Gospel is you've been set free from the law of God. The law of God no longer has any bearing upon our life. The moral law of God we don't have to keep. All you got to do is just kind of love people however you want to define it. But you are free from the law of God. So you don't have to live according to the moral straitjacket of the law of God. That's all been fulfilled. You can lay that aside. The moral law of God. Freedom from the moral restraints of Scripture. So basically they are libertines in theology. They're antinomian. That we've been saved from the law. So the law doesn't matter anymore. You can... You can Follow Christ as you see fit. It's interesting, we're basically promoting. Paul said in Galatians 5 to the Galatians, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Because that's what they were doing. He said, don't turn your freedom. Yeah, you are free in Christ. You're out from under the, the, the condemnation of the law. You're out from under the curse of the law. You're not out from under the moral law as a guide for righteousness. No. So don't turn your freedom, Paul says, into an opportunity for the flesh. To say that we are free from the law of God does not mean you can go out and live any way you want to. And Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. He said, don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. Because these false teachers were saying, look, we're free. So you're not under any bondage to God's Word or God's moral law at all. You can basically live however you want to. And they were distorting the freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom from the condemnation of the law. Freedom from the curse of the law. Christ has borne that for us. But we are still to live by the moral commandments of God. So, they were promoting a false freedom. And it's interesting how Peter describes it. They were promising these people freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. And there's the irony. They talk a lot about being free when they and themselves were given over to their own sin and corruption and they themselves were slaves. Talking about freedom, but they were slaves. They were enslaved to their own sin, not even aware of it. And yet they're trying to talk other people into following their lifestyle to leave the Scriptures, to live in sin, because, hey, you're free to do that. It's kind of like a man sinking in quicksand. And he's sinking down in there and someone's walking by and he can't get out, but he's sinking in the quicksand. Someone's walking by and he says, hey, jump in. The water's great. And that's kind of what these false teachers are doing. 
They are slaves to their sin. They are sinking in their own quicksand of sin and corruption. And they can't get out. But people are walking by and they're saying, hey, come on in and join us. Jump in the quicksand with us. In effect, that's what they're doing. And Peter adds to that in verse 19, for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. He's overcome by a sin, he's a slave to a sin. Jesus said the same thing. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So here's the irony. These guys are preaching freedom, but they themselves are slaves of their own corruption and they're trying to make other people slaves as well. You see, to set the flesh free is to make it a slave of sin. But if you set the flesh not free from the law of God, but free to follow it because of the grace of Jesus Christ, then there's a freedom there from sin that can only be experienced in the Lord. The gospel of free grace was perverted by these false teachers into a gospel of disgrace. It promoted sinfulness and moral debauchery. And then Peter adds to that, that they escape and then they're entangled again. Look at verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now there's a debate among the commentaries at this point, who is Peter talking about? Is he talking about the false teachers or those who follow the false teachers. And you can, you can read the arguments and the support for both of those positions. Inevitably, I think it's probably the false teachers, but it's also going to be descriptive of their followers as well. So in a sense, I think both can be described. And look at how Peter says what he says about them. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, initially, they have escaped from the defilements of the world. They have made a profession of faith. They've come out of their paganism. They've come into the church. And so they have escaped. And notice what Peter says. They've escaped by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's the word epinosis, which normally refers to a full experiential knowledge it almost sounds like they really were born again. They escaped from the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But then, sadly, they are entangled again and they are overcome by those sins. Not a good picture. This is kind of the definition of an apostate. Someone who becomes a Christian and then they leave Christianity. And so Peter is describing these people that on some sense, they had a real experience. They came to the knowledge, the epinosis, a full knowledge, an experiential knowledge of the Lord and the Savior Jesus Christ. But then they are entangled. Think of Absalom, his incredible head of hair being caught in the branches of the oak tree. Or think of the ram being caught in the thicket that Abraham sacrificed instead of his son Isaac. And so these people are entangled. They are caught. They can't escape. They're entangled back in that old sinful lifestyle again. And not only are they entangled, they are overcome. They are defeated. They are overpowered. They just give up fighting sin. So they become entangled. They're overcome. Whatever knowledge they had here in verse 20 of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it was defective. They genuinely experienced some kind of outward reformation. I mean, they were in the church. They participated in the church. They had fellowship in the church. They, they professed faith in Jesus Christ. They went through all the motions of being a good member of the church. But then suddenly they fall into sin and they never recover. And they're gone. We've had people like that in this church. It's life-changing. 
and then give a few months or a year and they're gone. And they're off into some crazy other religion. They're totally gone. So there is a knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus' life so that they stopped going to the temple prostitutes. They stopped worshiping the idols. They stopped engaging in lies and dishonesty and their business dealings. And they make a good show of being a Christian for a period of time. But it does not last. And that's, that's the indictment. They are again entangled and overcome. That's the sadness. This is really what Jesus taught His disciples. Remember Matthew 13? The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the Word and immediately receives it with joy. I mean, he, he's happy. Man, I'm saved. My sins are forgiven. He receives the Gospel with, with joy. Sounds like he's a Christian. Sounds like he's got the real thing. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the Word, immediately he falls away. There's a defect of heart on the inside. And it's a great warning because people can look like Christians and they can be outwardly changed for a period of time, but then they fall away. They get ensnared back in that sin and they give up fighting and they just are overcome. They just give themselves back to that old sinful lifestyle again. Don't ever give up on your struggles with sin. Even as believers, yeah, we can struggle with sin. But don't you ever give up on that. You keep repenting. You keep seeking Christ. You keep seeking more grace to overcome it. Because if you get to the point to where you give up, then sadly, this is going to describe you. And these people are not going to go to heaven. You can have an reformation in your life without regeneration of your heart. And that's what's going on with these people. Peter said in effect of people like this that they hold to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. A form of godliness. Their words, their lifestyle for a period of time looks godly. But they have denied its power and ultimately it's a sham. And time will reveal the true character of their heart. So what Peter adds to this is that the last state has become worse for them than the first. That is, the state of apostasy is actually going to be worse than their previous life of paganism or heathenism. Why? Because they've been exposed to more truth. They're going to be held accountable for more light that they've received being in the church and, and hearing the preaching of the Word of God to whatever extent they heard it. And so the last state of their apostasy is going to be worse than the first. Jesus again taught His disciples this when He told the sad story of that unclean spirit that left a man and later returned and found that the house as a figure of speech for the heart of the man was unoccupied. It had been swept and put in order. There had been some good cleanup going on in this house, this, this heart of this man. It had been renovated. It, it had, had a... a a uh, what do you call it? A, a not a, a a do-over, but what do you call it? There you go. And all that's happened to this guy or this person. So everything's been cleaned up, tidy, swept, mopped, painted, but it's un unoccupied. Christ isn't in there living. And so this unclean spirit comes back and takes along seven more spirits more wicked than himself and they all live in that man's life. 
And Jesus says the same words. That point is, is that evil can leave a life for a season. But if there's not true regeneration, if there's not true repentance, true faith, then that door is wide open for it to come back in. And if it comes back in, it comes back in with a vengeance. More powerful than before. And the last state of that life is worse than the first. That's why Peter goes on to say in verse 21, for it had been better for them not to them. So now Peter is saying that they had knowledge of the way of righteousness. They were taught truth on some level. It brought them close to the kingdom of God. It certainly brought them into the midst of the church of God. They knew the importance of moral teaching from the moral law of God, but they didn't live it. And Peter says, it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turn away. In other words, ignorance is bad, but disobedience is worse. Apostasy is far worse than the original paganism. And then to add a final stamp on this, Peter says in verse 22, he uses the animal proverbs. He said, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So it's interesting because Peter has already described these false teachers as unreasoning animals back up in verse 12. He's already likened them to Balaam who's dumber than a donkey. We saw that last week. He had less spiritual insight than the donkey he was riding. And we also know that in the Old Testament both dogs and pigs were viewed as unclean animals. Jesus even said this about those two animals. He said, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before the swine or they will trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So basically, Peter is echoing this. So when he's talking about dogs, he's not talking about your cute little house pets, your little lap dogs that we're so fond of at times. These dogs were the street dogs. They were the scavengers of the garbage and the trash. They were the nuisance. They were not pets. But what does he say about the dog? He returns to his own vomit. And Peter gets very graphic here, but he is dead serious. Because he's saying people who, who leave their sin and come into the church, but their hearts are... You probably have, but we've had dogs... And sometimes dogs, for one reason or another, throw up the contents of their stomach. And Peter is describing these converts in this way. So the dog throws up, and there it is on the ground. And he says, this is like the convert that separates himself from his old sinful lifestyle. The paganism all the sexual immorality, all the, the bad things that he was doing. So there's, there's been a change. He, he has put distance between him and all of that vomit. But then, what happens to the dog? The dog starts thinking, well, you know, amazingly, suddenly I'm hungry again. And he says, my, my stomach feels empty. And and look at there's a meal right over here in the grass. And and it looks it looks kind of appetizing. And you know, it makes me want to throw up just thinking about this, but we've seen the dog do it, and it's revolting, isn't it? Have you ever seen a dog eat its own vomit? Golly, it's gross. And that but that's what Peter wants to impress upon you. Would you do that? And yet the dog does it with delight. He relishes it. And he says, that's what you do, you foolish 
fake Christian. When you expel all this sin off and, and you go your own way, but then suddenly you're drawn back to it into that sinful lifestyle, you're eating your own vomit. And He's just trying to impress by giving us this gruesome, revolting image. But this is what you do when you go stick your face back into that pile of sin that you had abandoned previously. Don't do it. It's gross. And He's just using this analogy. may very well come from the book of Proverbs to communicate that dogs do physically what these people do spiritually when they return to their sin. Whether you're a false teacher doing it or one of the followers, you're being like this dog. And then he moves on to the pig. The sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. So you take a pig, clean that critter up, you wash his skin till it's just glistening bright pink, you brush his teeth, you paint his nails, a little Listerine in the mouth, a little lipstick on the pig. You can put a tuxedo on that thing. And what's it going to do? He's going to go find the nearest mud hole and just go immerse himself in that, in that mud again. And what's the point that Peter's making? You can change the outside. But if all you're doing is changing the outside and not the inside, the nature has not changed. You can clean up people and they can stop their drinking and they can stop their whatever sin that they're committed to and they can be reformed in the terms of moral reformation going on. But if their heart is not changed, you've just washed them on the outside. And you give them a chance and the inside nature will dictate and drive them back to the old life. Drive them back to the mud. And so what Peter is emphasizing is that the nature never changed. And that's the, that's the point of people both with the false teachers and those who followed them, though they may have gone through some outward reformation, they have gone back to the vomit, they've gone back to the mud, their, their, their inside, their heart never was changed. They just experienced a little outward reformation. No seriousness in loving Christ. No seriousness in living for the Lord and really living out of a thankfulness that He has forgiven us of our sin. Christ is out of the head. He's out of the mind. We're just living for ourselves. And Peter is saying, beware. These are like tares among the wheat. These are like goats among the sheep. So false teachers and those who follow them never really change at all. They experienced a temporary cleansing from the defilement of sin, but their inner nature drove them back into it. By contrast, how did Jesus refer to His followers? Dogs or pigs? No, sheep. Sheep are different. He says, My sheep... Hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Those are sheep. This whole section raises the issue about is Peter saying that believers can lose their salvation? Is he actually their salvation? And I would say no. I think there is a knowledge that can be experiential, it can be Real, it seems real, of coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ without being true saving knowledge. And this is kind of scary. But I think the Scriptures are very clear to say that if someone is genuinely converted, they cannot lose their salvation. Jesus said in John 10, I give eternal life to them, not temporary life. I give them eternal life. 
and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Sounds like we're pretty secure. Thank the Lord. No one. Nobody else. Satan can't. You can't. You can't snatch yourself. No one can snatch them out of my hand. We're safe and secure in Christ. Paul said the same thing when he said in Romans 8.30 that those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the same group of people, they were predestined, they were called, they were justified, they were glorified. Nobody fell out. Everyone who was called, they got justified. Everyone that was justified, they got glorified. They were secure in their salvation. John also says that no one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because his seed, God's seed abides in him. Whether the seed refers to the Holy Spirit or to the new nature that we have, but his seed abides in him and he cannot sin. That is, live in unrepentant, continual sin because he's born of God. So you cannot become an apostate. Yeah, we do sin, but we're repenting of it. But the idea that he cannot sin, that's a present tense, means you cannot live in perpetual unrepentant sin. You can't if you're a true child of God. Because you've been born of God and His seed abides within you. You can't fall away. And what about those who do fall away? Well, John says this about them. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. So they really weren't among the born again Christians. They went out from us, but they really were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. So they're fakes. They're apostates. They're tares among the wheat. So those who do leave were never really of us. They were never really truly born again. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. So those who are in the everlasting covenant will not turn away from the Lord. Why? Because God will not turn away from them. And He places the fear of Him in their hearts so that they cannot become apostate. So Peter is talking about people that they sure look like they were Christians. These false teachers and those followers, they sure sounded like it for a while. They came to the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but it was all on the outside. You're just cleaning up a pig. You're not changing it into a sheep. It remains a pig. And eventually it goes back to the mud hole. One of the great marks in closing of true faith is that it perseveres. It perseveres in the Gospel. It perseveres in the faith. And Peter is describing these fruitless, fig tree, false teachers who come under the curse of Christ because they are distorting and perverting the preciousness of the Gospel of our Lord. Peter is also warning the saints not to be like them. Don't be unstable. Don't give in to your sin. Fight it. Don't be led astray thinking that, you know, hey, the sin not that big of a deal. God doesn't care. Get back into the Word of God. Let the Scriptures guide you and teach you on how to live a life that pleases the Lord. Seek the Word, which Peter will emphasize in chapter 3. Be a Berean Christians. When you hear teachers, go back to the Word of God and examine it. Make sure they're in line with Holy Scripture. Don't just be a listener. Be a reader of the Word as well. That's your responsibility. Because too many false teachers claim to have new truth 
So listen to me, don't read your Bible, because I've got it all figured out. And it, consequently, they encourage people to neglect their Bibles, to n ignore their Bibles. It's okay not to read your Bibles. After all, it just will create arguments and division. It's unhealthy, all this theology stuff. Just listen to me. It's what they're saying. And yet the Word of God tells us, no, read the Word of God. As we've already heard earlier, when Christ prayed in John 17 to the Father, and He's praying to the Father for us, as well as the disciples in the first century. But He says, Father, sanctify them in truth. And Thy Word is truth. So the Lord and Peter and the rest of Scripture would say, stay in the Word. Fight to find time to read it, to meditate on it, to pray over it. Because this is where God, through His Spirit, gives us grace to live a life that honors Him. Well, may the Lord encourage us as we have been warned by the bad example of these false teachers and those who follow them to stay pure, to fight against sin, to stay in the Word of God, renew our minds so that the Spirit of God can conform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. And may God help us all to do that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do uh, thank You again for just how bold and graphic Peter is in laying out the, the sins, the deceptions of these false teachers. He took it seriously. And Lord, in our own day and age, when there is so much departure from the faith, there is so much of this going on within our own day and age, Lord, we need Your grace. We need Your help that we might stay faithful to You and faithful to Your Word and Your Gospel. So Lord, motivate us by Your Spirit. Give us a hunger for Your Word. Give us grace to fight against those sins which can so easily entangle us and help us to run our race with endurance that Jesus Christ might be glorified in the end. So Lord, bless us and help us to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.